You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, February 7th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with Haley Moss, Florida's first openly autistic lawyer, in part two of our new weekly segment, Disability as Ability. More in today's feature report. Also, coming up in the next half hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from our public affairs program, KiteLine. More following your daily headlines. On February 2nd at the Bloomington City Council meeting, City Consultant Jonathan Ingram from the Novak Consulting Group presented the findings on the effectiveness of city boards and commission structure. Ingram explained the observations they noticed while watching the boards and commissions meetings and talking to members. Um, right now, there are 49 boards of commissions, right? So one, one of the one of the things to really emphasize here is this clearly demonstrates that one of the things that, um, you know, you all as a city value is transparency, is public engagement, and really collecting input um, from your community, from the vast amount of expertise um, to really um, to really help engage your citizenry um, with the inner workings of the local government. Um, each of these has been, you know, added, um, you know, with, um, you know, with, the community's interest in mind, right? So, you know, um, the, the reason for adding these commissions um, are really usually in response to very specific issues, very important policy issues. But over time, what has happened is that many of the boards and commissions, many um, have developed really overlapping missions, and it's created some confusion regarding role accountability, role and accountability of kind of certain features. And it's also kind of compounded work and created redundancy in terms of moving sort of policy questions through the policy development and execution process. Uh, and this also, we, we see that this is this is done a couple of things. It's strained staff capacity. One of the things I'll, I'll talk about in a minute is just kind of the amount of time that goes into managing the board and commission process. Um, and it's created some difficulty in recruiting and retaining members on the board and the commissions. Um, there's really a number of commissions with significant long-term vacancies in terms of getting folks to fill them. And, um, and that really impedes sort of progress in that space and, and diminishes the value of those, of, of, of those commissions. Um, so uh, we also see that there's there's kind of a lack of clarity in terms of how board and commission advice is is sort of transmitted and utilized in the policy development process. So we've tried to focus recommendations to try to try to address these these broad bucket issues. Um, we also know that just from a management perspective, in terms of how the process is organized, um, it's a very decentralized process. So there, there's kind of a lack of central coordination, and it creates some inconsistency and inefficiency in terms of how each individual board and commission is ma is managed. Uh, in some cases, vacant are filled very quickly. In some cases, they re they remain open for extended periods of time. Uh, there can sometimes be very kind of limited communication to applicants, depending on um, you know the commission. And there's also no owner, no sort of central owner in the 
city of the onboard database, which is used to, to really to really manage um, the process. And, and there's also you know, kind of an opportunity to enhance um, you know, training for new board and commission members around, you know, kind of key housekeeping things in terms of open meeting laws, um, you know, kind of roles and responsibilities of staff liaisons, kind of, sort of what the expectations are. Um, so, you know, again, built, we've built some recommendations in our assessment um, that speak to these issues as well. The consulting firm found that the combined efforts of city staff to support the boards and commissions totals to around 498 hours a week. Ingram recommended more onboard training for members of the boards and commissions when they are appointed, consolidating some of these similar boards and commissions, and hiring a staff member specifically dedicated to boards and commissions. Particularly important, he noted, that there needs to be someone in charge of the applications and paying attention to which boards and commissions have vacant positions. Ingram suggested that the commissions are focused on a holistic goal rather than their niche subtopics. So each of these are very kind of specialized, right? But they're all part of a broader sort of transportation planning bucket. Um, and, and if you make adjustments in one of these areas, they tend to have, you know, fundamental implications in the other areas, right? Um, the way the process is structured now, um, if there's a, for example, a new intersection is is uh, is put in, um, you go through a process with the parking commission, you go through a process with the traffic commission, you go through a process, a separate process with the bicycle and pedestrian safety commission. Um, really combining this focus is going to stream the deliberation process. It's also going to allow commission members to step back and think a bit more holistically about broader transportation planning related issues uh, as they deliberate on um, on the, the matters that are placed before them. Council member Sue Scambaleri asked about the outcome of public input in other cities. Novak Consulting has recommended consolidating certain boards and commissions. Not so much to, to contradict you, but perhaps to put a finer point on your statement. You mentioned that we should be thinking in terms of skill sets that are needed to do a given set of work. I would I would also add beyond just skill sets is also perspectives. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not necessarily tied to just a skill. It might be tied to a perspective. Um, so I offer that thought. That's a great question. And absolutely. When you, have, when you have recommended to other cities and towns that they consolidate and I realize this is a very broad question. When you've recommended to other cities and towns that they consolidate or blend or streamline, um, I guess my ultimate question is what happened to public input? What did they, did, did they say, gosh, we're not getting the input that we needed anymore? Or you know what? Public input didn't suffer at all. We're getting you know, the same quality of input and better and better quality input. Yeah. So can you comment on that? Ingram replied, saying that it is important that the public has an opportunity to engage, and the citizens know how to do so. He said that since Bloomington already does a good job at that, it just needs to maintain it. If there is a group of citizens who, who feel like they don't, who have something to say, who feel like they don't have an avenue to say it, you as city council are going to hear about that. Right. And that's and that's one of those things that's going to kind of help you all you know, determine whether whether sort of additional modifications might be necessary. But I don't I have not seen any adjustments that we've recommended because our goal is not to decrease transparency or the opportunity right. for engagement. Our goal is to make it as valuable as possible to build a structure that helps take that information and convert it into policy decisions. The next city council meeting will be held on February 9th.
Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison-prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Confirmed by journalist Carrie Blakinger on December 31st, prisoners at the Memorial Unit in Rocheron, Texas, went on strike to protest conditions and the use of solitary confinement. Prison officials confirmed the strike, saying that up to 16 prisoners were participating and one prisoner was hospitalized but recovered. The strike ended on January 14th. Supporters of the strikers have posted their written demands, which include demands to change policies of restrictive housing, visitation rules, and offerings, as well as access to basic necessities. On the evening of January 2nd, a disturbance was reported at the Maryland Reception, Diagnostic, and Classification Center in Baltimore, Maryland. According to several news outlets, several fires were started at the facility, resulting in four people being sent to area hospitals with non-life-threatening injuries and now released. 28 prisoners were treated for smoke inhalation. The fires occurred on the fifth floor of the facility where books, mattresses, clothing, and food carts were set on fire, amounting to more than $50,000 in damages. The cause of the fires is unknown, or how many prisoners were involved. The Baltimore Sun cited issues related to understaffing of guards. A group of prisoners at Millhaven Institution in Ontario, Canada, launched a hunger strike on January 3rd to protest their proposed relocation within the facility due to a construction project. Prisoners were concerned that relocation would increase their risk of exposure to COVID-19. After a meeting between staff and protesters, the relocation was successfully called off. On Monday, January 3rd, 14 prisoners at Taylor Correctional Center in Perry, Florida, organized a sit-down and work strike to protest the conditions inside of the facility, including unwashed linens, assault by guards, unsanitary food, and non-working toilets. During and after the sit-down, flyers circulated with the title, This Means War, We Are Responding, that outlined the prisoners' demands. The facility went on lockdown after the sit-down. There is an active call to contact prison officials with a list of demands from the Revolutionary Intercommunal Black Panther Party, or RIBPP. Decades of mismanagement at Rikers Island Correctional Center has been exacerbated by the past few months of the COVID-19 pandemic. On January 8th, about 200 detainees in the Robert N. Daverin complex, where many young people are held, began a meal refusal protest in response to generally worsening conditions and COVID-related quarantine procedures. In interviews with the New York Times, detainees share they were not being granted access to recreational programming or the law library and that they had not been allowed outside for weeks. They said violence was rampant in the facility. An even more widespread hunger strike has been planned ahead of Joe Biden's visit to New York City on February 3rd. At least two dozen prisoners at the Santa Rita Jail in Dublin, California, are in hunger strike this month in response to an increase in prices at the jail's commissary. According to KTVU, 
Prison officials claim commissary prices increased by 5% this year, but detainees track increases on standard items ranging from 21% to 68%. Commissary prices at the jail are much higher than the nearby San Francisco jail, in large part due to the 40% commission the Alameda County Sheriff's Office levies on all purchases. One detainee, Eric Rivera, told KTVU that he planned to go as hard as I can and that collective protest is their only option because prison authorities respond to nothing else. On January 27th, strikers at Santa Rita sent messages of solidarity to those on strike on Rikers Island. Quote, we stand with you because it's the same everywhere. On Wednesday, January 12th, four prisoners detained at the New Orleans Juvenile Justice Center in New Orleans, Louisiana, escaped the facility. The detainees escaped around 1.30 p.m. as one person used an access card, letting the other three people free and physically confronting a guard. The director of the center said it was experiencing staffing problems due to the pandemic. All four prisoners have been recaptured. Two prisoners were recaptured after a two-hour standoff with police. According to NOLA.com, the escape came four days after another escape attempt from the same facility. In 2019, Perilous reported on a significant disturbance at this facility where prisoners barricaded themselves in the unit in which the NOPD Special Operations Division was called in. No injuries were reported. Five teenagers between the ages of 14 and 17 escaped from a juvenile detention facility called the Echo Glen Children's Center near Snoqualmie, Washington, after overpowering staff on duty and stealing a nurse's car. The five were all housed at the facility's only maximum security unit. The escapees were able to drive through the facility's gate without difficulty because it had been smashed by a visitor about a year ago and was never replaced. As of January 31st, two of the teens remained at large. You can find out more at perilouschronicle.com. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with Haley Moss, Florida's first openly autistic lawyer, in our new weekly segment, Disability as Ability. This is part two of the interview. We begin the conversation on the topic of ableism in standardized testing. Tonight, I'll be taking you on a ride through the world of mental and physical differences as seen through the people who embrace those differences in pursuit of a more accessible and tolerant society. It is my hope that through this program, we can cast that oh-so-important spotlight of existential dialogue on an often-forgotten community, that of the neurodiverse and physically diverse. So hop on board and let's turn disability into ability. Who better to start us off on our journey of transformation than Haley Moss? Diagnosed with high-functioning autism at three years old, Moss and her parents were told by doctors that she would be lucky to graduate high school. She not only went on to do so, she also graduated from the University of Florida with degrees in criminology and psychology, respectively. 
After graduating from the University of Miami Law School in 2019, Moss was sworn into the Florida Bar as the first openly autistic female attorney. Interestingly enough, it's funny you mentioned standardized tests. What do you believe standardized test companies should do with regard to individuals with disabilities? I did do my research on how the LSAT essentially is discriminating against students with disabilities, but and the same goes for the bar exam for that matter. Honestly, I, I have a very strong opinion on standardized tests. I think that they don't actually measure anything that is useful. I think that the bar exam doesn't tell you if you're going to be a competent attorney. I don't think that the SAT really tells you if you're going to be competent as a college student, for instance. What these tests do is they're designed as gatekeeping functions. Mm-hmm. They keep that, They were designed to keep out people who might not have money for their classes. They are designed. To, they were originally designed to exclude people who are marginalized and especially by race, so they're racist. They dis, they discriminate against people with disabilities, so they're ableist. That the and thinking about the bar exam history, it was originally designed to keep out women, so it is also sexist. So keeping in mind all of these different systems at play when it comes to standardized tests, that essentially they should be abolished, or if they when they are, they need to be replaced with something that actually measures something useful, not who has access to private tutors, not who has access traditionally to these tests or will perform well, or who gets accommodations, which are always on a case-by-case basis. And a lot of that is also, again, determined by classes, things such as who has access to resources, who had accommodations and a diagnosis as a child, who has that demonstrated history, or who has access to a professional who will diagnose and work with a student accordingly. So that being said, I think what standardized companies, test companies can do right now is really reevaluate what they're measuring. Mm. And they also need to kind of, I think, if we're just reforming instead of rebuilding and abolishing it completely, I think what needs to be done is kind of that real look inward. What is this measuring? Why are we doing this? Who is being excluded? And how do we make sure that we either streamline this process or give everybody enough time from the get-go that we're going to have these issues about extra time? You're not going to have someone at a disadvantage, and you're not going to have someone at an advantage. Because I know plenty of folks who tried to take advantage of things like extra time, even if they didn't have a disability, thinking they would get an advantage. Mm -hmm. What if we just gave ample time that no matter who you are, you can complete this test, whether it takes you five minutes or five hours. Let's just say we give everybody five hours then. You will have people who finish in five minutes, and you will have people who will take all five hours. That doesn't put anyone at an advantage or a disadvantage. These aren't speed speed runs, essentially. So that's kind of one of the things on this topic. But overall, I would lean more towards that standardized tests need not exist unless they're for a very specific purpose, and that is outlined from the get-go and proven, and it's actually applied equitably. Oh, absolutely. And I know that you mentioned that as well in your book, Uh, Great minds think differently. You know, you said that, quote, legal scholarship may be inclusive of neurodivergence uh, with analysis of autisms in legal proceedings and policy, but few, if any, tackle the issues facing the profession through a neurodiverse lens. That's an interesting quote there. Uh, Would you mind going into that a little bit more, for example? So how would the legal profession better view uh, individuals with disabilities or how could law firms change their thinking around neurodiversity from where they are now? First off, I think it's important to acknowledge that legal moves a little bit slow on most diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging issues. Right. I say that very deliberately. 
is when I was applying to summer associate positions, disability wasn't even something that was considered. There's always a footnote that, yes, you can ask for an accommodation, but that's about it. It's not that you're encouraged to apply as if you are a marginalized or by gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, or wherever in the world you may be from as well. Or if you're a veteran, for instance, and sometimes even veterans have a very different road through this and may also be people with disabilities, but I digress there, is what seems to happen is that it's still seen that there's a very black, like kind of very simplistic view of diversity that isn't all inclusive. And when it comes to disability and neurodiversity in particular, the legal field has ways of being exclusionary. So the bar application process often asks people about their mental health if they're being treated, if they're receiving treatment, if they've ever received treatment, what medication they may be taking, all sorts of things that may not only border on a privacy violation, but are discriminatory in nature. So it's more of a sympathetic lens, you think, more than an empathetic lens, perhaps? I think I think it, there needs to obviously be an empathetic lens. And even realizing when I was in school and when I got to the profession, at most neurodivergent attorneys I knew would always conceal it, that yeah. they didn't feel safe sharing that about themselves at work or in the profession and that a lot of hiring systems and this is for all professions rather have ways of excluding people who are neurologically different and ensuring essentially that we don't get to positions of power so I didn't know any professors with disabilities let alone neurodivergence I didn't know other students who were neurodivergent and we weren't given the same power in organizing, say, a student organization as today's students have now three to four years after I graduated. So things look very different now than even when I was in law school. And I think a lot of it does come down to the power that students have. And that's something that we don't often think about is young people have a lot more power than they get credit for. They're able to organize with each other. They're able to communicate like never before, thanks to the internet. But things happen a lot quicker, a lot better, and a lot more efficiently than ever before. Absolutely do, I would say, absolutely, especially with regard to uh, companies, for example, EY. I know uh, I know you mentioned that a lot in your book as well, and uh, a lot of different uh, companies. What uh, law firm initiatives are you aware of that, that have really changed that or have started to change the course of that discussion? I wouldn't say there's a specific hiring program or anything, and even those, I think, need to be revamped quite a mm-hmm. bit as well. But some of the big firms do have affinity groups that people with disabilities and their allies can join. And they do think internal programming, support, and things of that nature. But that's still in the minority of firms rather than the majority. A common stereotype these days as well is we know that ASD affects people across, and uh, autism spectrum, affects people across different racial and socioeconomic groups. But it's still believed that it's four times or so more commonly diagnosed in Boys and girls, for example, we often see there's a stereotype there that it, that you got to be white, you got to be a man, you got to be uh, of a certain age. Why is this the case? Is do you believe that there's a certain bias in the medical profession, or or uh, or uh, or in law, or where where do you believe the bias lies? There's bias everywhere you look, or if you choose to uncover it and really dive in. So when you're thinking about how we diagnose and identify autism, how the criteria for a diagnosis diagnosis is written, that a lot of the early research focused exclusively on boys, exclusively on men, and most of them primarily were white boys and men. We didn't think as much about communities of color. We weren't thinking about women. We weren't thinking about gender diverse individuals. We weren't thinking about adults 
we had a very narrow lens of how we were viewing autism, even that, but also social factors. I live in Miami, and most things in Miami are in both English and Spanish because there's a very large Hispanic and Latino population here. That if there were no resources in Spanish, a large subset of the community would not have access to resources about autism and related disabilities. There's cultural biases as well that in certain communities, and I've had this explained to me by friends, students, and colleagues alike, that in different communities, it's not accepted that disability education, acceptance, and confidence is very different. It's like this around the world as well. So when we expand past the United States and we see how disability is handled in other countries and other continents, we have a very different view. So I want to say when we're talking about bias, we can unpack this on every level. We can unpack the criteria used in the United States. We can unpack how the legal system treats people with disabilities. But there's a lot of different truths at play, and you will realize that ableism is a part of every single one of them. Where do you think that ableism really exists? Where have you seen that in uh, in modern society these days? Just some examples that that you've seen just from a personal experience. I know that's quite a vast uh, question. I was going to say, where so. haven't we? But we can even talk about something very simple as like closed captions on Zoom, or we can talk about something like the girl that I met when I was in high school, or we can talk about the way that you go through school when you're not being given the accommodations you need that you think that you're just lazy and dumb, even though that's not the case. Or we can talk about how people go, but you can't have autism, you're a girl. We can say all sorts of different things and unpack this all day long. But it's amazing the levels of things that you see or even the insensitivity. The thing with ableism that I always mention is it's a lot different than some of the other isms. It's a lot sneakier. Because here's the thing about ableism. People don't intend to act poorly towards people with disabilities. They don't want to treat them badly. People think that if they say the right words, they offer assistance and they follow this very prescribed rule book, but they're not being ableist. They're not being harmful. But it doesn't always work like that. Sometimes we get offered assistance when it's neither wanted nor needed or given assistance when it's neither wanted nor needed. That's a form of ableism too. That even the terminology that we use, think about when you were in school, maybe folks use the R word quite a bit. That's also ableism. Is think about how this is throughout all of our lives, the way that we talk about illness, the way that we talk about pandemic, the way that we talk about differences and even students who are receiving special education services in school. But it is a very layered conversation that affects every aspect of our lives, whether it's policy, whether it's daily living, whether it's friendships and relationships or our jobs or where we live, that is very hard to avoid the fact that ableism is probably a part of the environment that you're in. And it's not something that is easily just eradicated. It really does take a lot of effort. Sometimes you end up educating more than you would want to or hope to, and it's exhausting. That was Abe Shapiro speaking with Haley Moss, Florida's first openly autistic lawyer, in the second installment of our weekly segment. Disability versus Ability. Stay tuned for next Monday to hear the third and final part of the interview. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at MPI Solar Energy 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Kate Young. KiteLine is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Kate Young for WFHB. I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 